You are listening to The Sauna Show, a podcast that explores new ways to combat modern life and reclaim your health and vitality. My name is Sebastian Miro and I'm the CEO of Clearlight Saunas International and a passionate entrepreneur and health enthusiast. I'm sitting down with scientists, holistic health practitioners and change makers in the wellness space to talk about all things detox, health and happiness. Hi everyone, we have Dr. Joy Hussein today with us who you might remember was studying saunas and, and sweat and anything in between of the health benefits of infrared saunas in particular, but probably also saunas in general. And um, she has submitted all her findings. So we can now talk about actually what she has come up with and found. Welcome on the show, Joy. Glad to be here, Sebastian. Thank you. Yeah, thanks for making time again. So if I, if I understand right, then um, you've... Uh, despite COVID, you've gone through the whole thing and you've you've followed your research and you have cer certain insights that you can share with us ar around your research, eh? Yes. No, I was fortunate that uh, I started my clinical trial in August of 2019 and we were able to actually get 10 women through before the laboratory was closed uh, because of the COVID pandemic restrictions. So yes, I got 10 women through uh, my clinical study that was looking at comparing infrared sauna with exercise and in a controlled fashion. So we had a control intervention that was uh, kind of a resting meditation. Oh, okay, gotcha. And um, what exactly would be the exercise? So you would say people do either exercise or use infrared saunas? Well, actually, what we did is we used the same 10 women and we made them each go through uh, a bicycling, an indoor bicycling um, exercise for three 15-minute sessions. So it was a total of 45 minutes. Uh, or we had that same woman uh, go through three 15-minute resting sessions or three 15-minute sessions in an infrared sauna set at 60 degrees in one of the clear light jacuzzi ones. So it was one of your own. <laughs> <laughs> Very good. From our point of view, of course, we think that the wavelengths that, that we provide are key of having a good infrared sauna, but you know, your study wouldn't, wouldn't be able to quantify that because you only used ours, which is great. Yeah. <laughs> But uh, what was a nice power, the type of study I did is something called a crossover study. And that uses uh, people individually as their own control. So in, you often hear about randomized control trial where, where they'll actually have a, a control group, a separate group of people that are put through something similar to what's being compared. But for me, I really think sauna is something that we need to measure individually. The effects it has are very individual. So I really wanted to set up a trial that used people as their own controls. So that's why that meditative session uh, was, was what I compared all the findings to in that one person, if that makes sense. Because that's sort of like a rest, a baseline rest, rest mode and what the body would do then. Yes, although when we talk about the findings, there were a few unexpected glitches I didn't expect. And uh, just, to, just to go straight there, it's that the actual resting control session, the meditative session, which I thought wouldn't have much effect, I actually think had some effect. And so I'm 
in a way, my comparisons were looking at some of the things I looked at, like arterial stiffness and heart rate variability changes were very similar in all three sessions. And I think it's because that meditative, quote, control session wasn't doing nothing. It was doing something as well. So. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that makes a lot of sense because it is very powerful. And of, of course, you know, my, many, many people yeah. use it to... But that isn't sector. what I intended. I was hoping that uh, I was trying to create an activity that wouldn't have much effect. But that's actually very difficult to do in this modern age, telling people not to do anything. <laughs> so. Yeah, but but I, I get what you're saying, you know, in, unless you, well, you know, really, like, if I think about infrared saunas, it is something that works on different bodies in different different ways. And some people like it hotter and some people like it less hot. And um, th that has definitely something to do with the body type they have and maybe also the state of health they are in. Mm. Yes, and you're bringing up some good points. So what did I look at in these three comparison interventions? Well, I looked at some basic physiology. So you mentioned uh, temperature, so body temperature. I looked at core body temperature that was measured through the ear, uh, through a, what's called a tympanic temperature. Um, I also looked at skin temperatures because uh, one of my other passions is sweat and sweat analysis. And I was, I haven't seen enough data on what happens to our skin temperature. So I used an infrared um, surface temp thermometer to measure skin temperatures in three places. I looked at the inner wrists, I looked at the, um, the forehead, and then I looked at the back. And there, that was where some of the findings were. Um, I'll get to that. But um, I also looked at breathing rate, heart rate, pulse rate. Heart rate and pulse rate are two different things. Pulse rate is what we get from a more peripheral source, like when you put on a pulse oximeter, one of those little clips that anyone who's been in an emergency room, they pop that on to look at your oxygen saturation. So I used that as well as I used a chest belt, uh, something called a Zephyr heart rate variability monitor. Um, if I had to do it again, I might use the aura ring, which it, it would have been, yes, <laughs> which uh, I found out about through you and Johannes, actually. So thank you. But um, that might be have to be a future clinical trial. So anyway, I did look at that heart rate variability, pulse rate, uh, pulse, um, what we call arterial thickness. And I used a cuff for that, that actually looked at... Um, measures of arterial stiffness. So it looked at all the blood pressures, both uh, what we call peripheral blood pressure, which is what you standardly get when you go into the doctors, or it had a little laser that shined through your radial artery and went to your aorta and back and had an algorithm that analyzed that. So looked at measures of arterial stiffness, which was quite interesting. Um, To, to actually do. And people were fairly well tolerated that little laser going up fairly well. <laughs> But unfortunately, the findings were very similar, which at first I was, when I first analyzed the data, I was a little um, disappointed by that because I had hoped that we would see some real differences between exercise and infrared, especially. But the more I've reflected on the results and, and analyzed them and looked at them from different perspectives, I'm realizing I think that infrared sauna probably has the same improvements that uh, on arterial stiffness, because I did see lowered 
arterial stiffness, but just in all three interventions. But thinking about that, I think it's that all three probably have improvements to to each individual. So would you have included in another exercise like, well, not exercise, working on the computer for an hour, we would have expected that that would have been not a positive. Yes. If I had to do it over, I would have come up with a different um, control. Yeah, a different control intervention. But the trouble is being on a computer involves stress. And it really, there's it's hard to find an activity that doesn't involve some form of stress to us anymore. And so that's, that's one of the interesting things that came out of this. But another part of this clinical trial, which I still haven't fully talked about all the physiological findings, but I also collected sweat and urine around each of these three activities. Um, again, wanting to further explore this idea of detox. I think the last time we talked, we discussed the global sauna survey results and I found a lot of people were motivated to use the sauna for detox, but that's a real thorny issue in science because when clinicians talk about detox, it's a very different beast than when people talk about detoxing. Um, So I wanted to further explore that and I partnered with the Queensland Alliance for Environmental Health Sciences and they agreed to analyze urine and sweat samples. So urine before and after each activity, as well as sweat samples from those three sites that I took skin temperatures from as well uh, for organophosphate and pyrethroid uh, pesticides or insecticides. They're both synthetic uh, insecticides that have been used quite globally um, since DDT was banned. Oh, gotcha. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So, so on, on that you, you were looking out for, is there a change if you do one of these ex- activities in terms of yes, how, what the concentration in sweat and urine is? And we did get some interesting findings from that too. So, Do you want to talk a little bit about the findings? Is that a good time to actually sort of go through these and see what, what you found and what that actually means for us? Sure. Yeah, I think this is a good time. Well, let's back up and go to the physiological findings. So I really only found... Uh, well, three significant findings uh, differences. So first of all, it had to do with the tympanic temperature. So with infrared sauna, there is no question that the core body temperature goes much higher than significantly higher than in the bicycling, in the indoor bicycling, or in the control but by how much would it go up from normal? Nearly a full degree, which doesn't sound like very much, but actually is a full degree centigrade, I should say, too, which is larger than a full degree Fahrenheit. Um, so a lot of people might look at that and go, well, wait a minute, but that is one of the levers our body uses, our immune system uses. Think about when you get a low-grade fever. Well, low-grade fever usually is in, a, in about that one degree range. Whereas uh, exercise did increase the core body temperature, but not near as much as that. It was more in the 0.6 to 0.7 degree centigrade. So so would you say that, just to to go all to the end of what that really means, this one degree increase in in core body temperature, that it's sort of like a maintenance fever that you can induce by using an infrared sauna to deal with some sort of low... Low, low level sort of 
I wouldn't say illnesses, but, you know, like unwellness that, that could actually help us? Yeah, I think that's a really good hypothesis. And that's, I do think that you are turning on and turning off certain genes similar to our own body, how it, how it thermoregulates and how it uh, helps as a tool for immune function when you need it to so stimulating the immune system. Yes, I would have to say that certainly my results would support that, support that finding. Um, but, and that's to say exercise does too. So exercise is generating some, if we want to call it internal heat, which is not a very accurate way of saying it, but yeah, uh, I think it's generating heat, but not to the same degree. Yep. Very interesting. Terrific. Now other findings. So I said that there were three major findings. So one had to do with this core body temperature. The second one had to do with respiratory rate and On retrospect, it should have been obvious, but it wasn't. Um, so exercise increases your breathing rate, no question of it. So in these 10 women, it, it markedly went up, whereas actually it didn't in the other two. So infrared sauna doesn't make you breathe faster. Um, and the control, obviously, in meditation, you don't breathe faster. And although that seems simplistic, it... When you look at the research around reactive oxygenated species, which are toxins that get created when we're in a high oxygen environment or like in exercise, we forget that oxygen is not a benign substance. You know, in, you can have too much oxygen and that can create too many of these what we call free radicals or reactive oxygenated species. So in a way, uh, another way of looking at all these findings, again, is that I think Fred Sauna gives you some of the cardiovascular benefits of increased blood flow, increased heart rate, increased pulse rate without having uh, increased oxygen and uh, reactive oxygen species formation. And there have been a few little studies that have looked into this, but now I'm really shining a light on, we need to look more at this because I think these are some of the mechanisms that we're starting to think are behind some aging, um, uh, in aging medicine, these reactive oxygenated species load are starting to affect certain parts of our mitochondria of our cells. And so I think this is, this is shining a light on a future research um yeah research topic that needs 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 some more evidence around so overall that's a good thing about using an infrared sauna if i hear you right um there's quite a few similarities between doing exercise and infrared saunas in terms of cardiovascular health that type of thing you know or stimulation of it but yes. but in terms of the the faster breathing which brings in oxidization into the body versus right. antioxidants, right? You know, it's, it's the opposite of that. It's, it's a not so good thing. You have less in infrared saunas. So the other thing this is pointing to me is the power of breath, which is, is you know, very popular right now, but this is actually giving a lot of support to that, that I think uh, they're using the lever of breath combined with the heat of sauna and especially the infrared sauna, the gentler heat, could be quite a powerful tool that needs further exploration. Mm. 
Because that's, you know, just going slightly off topic there, that's something that I often mention is that when I use a Finnish sauna, I need a break after 10 minutes. And, you know, and maybe I can do it two, sometimes three times, you know, so I'm done in, in half an hour or, or 40 minutes because I'm so exhausted from, you know, this this heat stress. And that's something that I always really appreciate about infrared saunas is that uh, you can lengthen the, the the session. And so when people say, look, you know, should I have it as hot as possible? And say, well, if it means you cannot stay as long in a sauna, I would probably recommend keep it down to the temperature that we we know is, you know, is beneficial, but not stressful. But you can stay long and therefore you get more benefits overall. Yes. And that's interesting that you mentioned the individual variation. So what I found in these 10 women is some women had no problems at all doing the 15 minutes, three of the 15 minute sessions. Some women it struggled a bit. They were, they were ready to come out at the 15 minute mark. And I did set a sanctuary to um, clear light sauna at 60 degrees. So Celsius. So that, you know, I'm wondering about some of those women that had a little difficulty getting to, they all completed it, but there were some that completed more more easily than others. I wonder if maybe setting that temperature a little bit lower for them might have, yeah, might have helped. Um, So, yeah, so I I thought that was, so that respiratory rate, I actually think is a quite a profound finding, even though. It's one of those that uh, on initial inspection, you think, oh, well, isn't that obvious? But actually it isn't that obvious uh, until I could actually demonstrate it like that. Um, The other thing is it highlights what makes us very unique as human beings with our thermal regulation. We're one of the few mammals that actually we sweat in a very unique manner. And a lot of other mammals rely on panting or increased respiratory rate to thermoregulate. And that's where I think sauna is, is highlighting our uniqueness in a way of thermoregulation. It's taking advantage of this idea that we don't, um, we don't fall back. We don't rely on breathing fast and panting to cool down, to maintain our metabolic reactions. So I, I found that, I found that fascinating. And then on the subject of sweat, um, the third finding I found was skin temperatures. So although, although um, anecdotally just observing, or I should say observationally, women sweat more with the infrared sauna, but that was more just by inspection looking. Uh, what's interesting is their skin temperatures were actually higher, the highest especially in the back, more so than the wrist and the face and the forehead. But no question that the skin temperature remained higher uh, throughout. I checked it, you know, before and then during at three different points and then after each of the activities and no question of it. The back skin temperatures were higher with infrared, lowest with exercise and then in between with control. And I think that could be some of the benefits we might be, or some of the effects we might be looking around skin and sauna, which you wouldn't get from exercise necessarily. Although you're sweating copiously in exercise and all the women sweated copiously, no question of that. And I collected that sweat and we'll talk about that analysis. But what's interesting is the difference in skin temperatures during these activities. 
what is your best guess of what it what a hotter skin does or what the benefit of hotter skin is for for our skin i mean you know we hear here Clearly, saunas do do hear pe people reporting. One of the first things they report when they get an infrared sauna or start using an infrared sauna is the glowing skin, the cleaner skin, and overall, you know, there are quite a few uh, illnesses that that seem to be uh, managed much better when you use an infrared sauna or even go away. Um, what, what's your theory about the benefits that that could have? Again, I think here's that lever of temperature having an effect on the largest organ of our body, the skin. And allowing that effect to affect the skin. Whereas in exercise, although you are sweating, you are not getting that actually elevated temperature to the cells in your skin. And remember that lever is turning on genes and turning off genes. And we're just now, we're just now in a position where we could even start to examine some of these things. And so we're at the tip of the iceberg. There's still a lot of work that needs to be done. I mean, I know of a, a small, well-designed well German study that looked at uh, water moisture barrier. And I think I've seen it quoted on your website and various um, sauna websites about looked at pH and looked at this moisture, what we call water moisture barrier. And that people who are frequent sauna goers tend to have a more hardy moisture barrier, which is what gives our our skin plumpness in a way, you know, it, it's, that's one of its functions is to seal us off <laughs> from the environment. So I'm thinking, yes, I think this heat training to the skin might be, might be one of the factors that's having this effect, you know, usually a good effect. Although keep in mind, not everyone gets skin benefits uh, from the sauna. Some people's sweat actually is quite irritative. Uh, with some, with certain conditions, say uh, open sores of psoriasis and eczema. But, you know, counterintuitively, people who regularly sauna bathe, even with those conditions, tend to find those conditions improve. Now, is that an immune effect or is that a direct skin effect? We don't know yet, but I thought that, I think that's all quite interesting. So, yeah. Brilliant. Thank you. Yeah, and you know maybe it has something to do with the vessel dilation, meaning the you know the overall blood supply is better to the skin as well. True, that could be nitric oxide mediated. I mean that gets talked about a lot. Interestingly, nitric oxide is actually a reactive oxygenated species, so that's where things get really interesting. <laughs> so could it be that not all reactive oxygenated species are harmful? That's something we have to revisit. But anyway. Uh, but yes, I think it could be. We, we definitely know that sauna and exercise, though, both affect our endothelial lining. So the cells that line our blood vessels. That's no question of it. There's more and more data that suggests that's where it's that's where some main effects are happening. So. What should we what should we go into next? I mean, you were saying that you found some things out about the sweat and urine, but it was not quite as conclusive as the, the first three you were talking about. Yes. So interestingly, um, well, first of all, I uh, let's back up organophosphates and uh, pyrethroids. I chose them because there are quite a few studies all over the world that have demonstrated evidence of them in urine. So in pregnant women, in men, women, in occupationally exposed farmers. So no question of it, 
this stuff is in our is in our urine. There's not many populations that have low levels of it. We all have detectable levels of it. Um, and my study did show, yes, all the women had detectable levels of both. Uh, I looked at four metabolites, two that were organophosphates and two that were pyrethroids. And we should back up. Uh, organophosphate uh, pesticides were actually banned from Australia in 2011. So what I'm picking up is legacy amounts. So again, these are persistent organic pollutants. They, once they're in our system, you know, they're there for a long time. So that's organophosphates. Now pyrethroids are more shorter acting in our systems, but we certainly use a lot of it here in Australia. All of our termite um, white ant treatments are synthetic pyrethroids. A lot of the AeroGuard, a lot of the insect repellent spray that many of us use, especially in the North with all the mosquitoes, that is synthetic pyrethroids. A lot of the drops that you put on your pets to, to help uh, kill the fleas and the ticks, which we have a lot of here in, in Northern Queensland, yeah, that's also synthetic pyrethroids. So if we're putting the drops on our pets and it's seeping into their system, we shouldn't be too surprised that we're getting it into our system too. So definitely I found that's the major finding is, yeah, I found evidence in everyone's urine and in everyone's uh, sweat. There was evidence of those. There were a few people that had lower levels compared to some of the others. But again, the focus of my study, the way it was designed was to compare it within people, within the same person. How, what are the changes like? And interestingly, um, organophosphates tended to be in higher levels of sweat and urine with the infrared sauna versus the, um, the pyrethroids, the things that I said we use a lot more of and that are shorter acting, tended to come out, tended to be detected in higher levels. Again, it's only 10 people, so I'm really not sure how how much we can, how much weight we can put into this evidence. But yes, with um, many of the metabolites around pyrethroids, they came out more with exercise sweat and, uh, and the urine produced around exercise. So that might be something for the future. I mean, if we can reproduce that, it would be great to be able to come up with um, recommendations as, as lifestyle tools for people who are farmers that are having to use this. Maybe they need to, depending on what type of pesticides they use, maybe they need to be getting into an infrared sauna um, a certain amount of a time more. And then yet for these pyrethroids, maybe we should be encouraging people to exercise uh, regularly around it. So I think this, again, it's opening doors. It's not it's not telling us how big the door is or um, how long it'll stay open, but it's it's opening the door to, to maybe looking at this load of environmental toxins that are, that were the soup that we're living in. <laughs> so. Yeah, 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 yeah. And, you know, if you think about <clears throat> people getting exposed to, um, to, 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 to these, these toxins, and I wonder whether there's an, a drop in the overall level in the body or whether they're exposed to the same levels that they expel 
or whether you know or, or whether you know it, it goes down over time or whether it still is is above of what's actually coming in and therefore the our toxic load still increases just on a slower way like did you see any correlation between in the beginning more came out in the end more, less really good question and no we weren't powered to i mean for the fir- this was the first study that i know of that looked at these amounts in sweat in human sweat so This is what we would call a pilot component to the study. We're just, we're we're out there. We're going to the moon with this one. <laughs> we really and you you made such a good point, Sebastian. The we cannot use these levels to actually reflect. We don't know if they actually reflect exposure and doses at all. I was just looking for detections of it. Really, just getting a sense of. Uh, and and so actually, the fact that I detected this in sweat as well as in the urine, really, it doesn't disvalidate this idea of detox. If anything, it does lend support to the idea, yes, we are expelling, you know, we are excreting some of this through the skin, which doesn't always get acknowledged, I'd say, in conventional medicine. Okay, yeah. So we have we've definitely clarity that exercise and infrared saunas help was bringing these out of the body compared to not doing this yes so in the control session there there definitely wasn't as much but i have to back up and look at the techniques used i had to create an artificial sweat so it could because think about it we don't well we do physiologically sweat but the amounts are so minuscule that it's hard to capture so i had to create artificial sweat and just the creation of artificial sweat would dilute it but we were they were generally low levels in the microscopic sweat and that is one of the reasons i did this uh, this trial is because a lot of the sweat collected around detox studies that have been done has been not very rigorous and so i was very careful in how i collected the sweat you know went on ice I, I've looked a lot at um, how we collect sweat and how to make sure that the way we store it and transport it doesn't decay or, or um, reduce the amounts of these that we could detect. So I was very careful about that, which unfortunately, a lot of the earlier studies that looked at this haven't always, I think, collected and stored sweat in, a, in an appropriately rigorous manner. So... Um, is there a way why you didn't check on heavy metals? Is it a more difficult process or was it just, is it, a, yeah? Well, if I had had an endless budget, I would have loved to look at heavy metals. <laughs> But really, uh, the detections for each of these, using these newer um, models of what we call mass spectrometry, we actually, we used a laboratory platform of what we call chromatography, liquid chromatography, gas chromatography, combined with something called mass spectrometry. This is very expensive. This is very um, high tech. These are very expensive machines. So to do, to detect heavy metals takes a different platform. So every substance takes a particular setting of these platforms to best capture. And in fact, we don't completely know because that hasn't been worked out for substances like organophosphates and pyrethroids, the studies that have been done so far have done mixtures of liquid chromatography with what we call MS versus gas chromatography with MS. And 
we chose liquid chromatography, but we don't know which of those actually best captures these molecules. So we're, that's still to be determined and, and being worked out. Now to, to do heavy metals would have required a whole other, um, you, probably we would have had to use a different mass spectrometry coupling basically. Gotcha. Well, there's certainly more to study, right? There is. In fact, I mean, that's what, that's why we called it a pilot study because really it's, it's just the first trial out there. And then we're going to, we need to follow up on these results, which I'm looking forward to. And like I said, I'm on the search for the right, for coming up with the right laboratory to get this all done in. Amazing. Well, there's definitely more and more interest in this field. We, we definitely see that with us. So, um, yeah, I, I'm, I'm sure you will. we will find the right setup for this. And there's certainly the interest out there. Yes, I think so, too. And I think there's the need. I mean, that's my passion as a clinician is I want to see uh, infrared sauna bathing as well as other forms of sauna bathing. I want to see it elevated from not being viewed as just an indulgence to an actual therapeutic tool. And I, I think it, there's a lot of room for that that we haven't fully captured yet. Yeah, yeah. And and if you if you think big picture, modern lifestyle brings certain issues with it. And one is that we, you know, over over the last century have introduced so many chemicals and you know um, synthetic chemicals that are out there and don't break down really quickly, or they're just still used and, and you know therefore they come also into our our organism. That I think hopefully consciousness will get to the point that there's just no question that you have to do exercise you know not only the ones that are thriving and and you know the, the ones that want to go places but actually everyone understands that if i don't want to end up with uh, degenerative diseases i will have to do something about that and in infrared sauna in my mind and modalities that lean lean onto infrared sauna are just as important as also exercise in these things. So I hope it will become just part of life. Yeah, in fact, there's a whole movement, which I'm sure you're familiar with, called lifestyle medicine. And I actually think what I'm trying to do with uh, sauna is put it as a, a usable tool in, the, in the, the lifestyle medicine toolbox. That's what I'd like to see. But with that, we need more evidence and we need it to be packaged in a way that's accessible to people. And, uh, and that's where I think infrared saunas are, are a nice package, especially in places like Australia, where we, you know, where it's, it's more difficult to convince people to walk into a, a traditional sauna when it's, you know, 40 degrees outside, whereas I still think there's benefits there, but we've, we've got to package it and uh, change our, our rhetoric around it so that it makes sense to people. So. Mm, very good look um should we go through the other points as well in terms of the heart rate and the, the pulse rate if you have some findings there or do you want to go somewhere else oh well i can we can back up and go through that uh, this is a good time to say what i was surprised by a lot of studies had shown that yes heart rate and pulse rate go up so i wasn't surprised to see that yes no question of it um heart rate and pulse rate went up. In general, the bicycling tended to increase the heart rate and pulse rate a little bit more um, than say the infrared sun. So again, that uh, was expected. What I didn't expect was there not being big differences in the blood pressures. Because there's been quite a few physiological studies that show that 
either the diastolic blood pressure or the systolic blood pressure can sometimes reduce when you go into saunas, both infrared sauna as well as um, the more traditional saunas. And in fact, that's one of the risk factors is for people who are prone to getting dizzy or low blood pressure, that's one thing you have to be careful of about getting into the sauna. But I didn't actually see that with the women. Uh, if anything, um, there might have been a slight decrease in systolic blood pressure, not diastolic, which is what mo most of the other studies have shown uh, in the women with the infrared sauna, but not to us. It wasn't, it wasn't uh, from a probability point of view, it wasn't significant. It wasn't statistically significant. Um, yeah, so that, uh, that was a little surprising to me. Um, I thought some people argue, well, maybe there just wasn't some people. I mean, when I've submitted this for review, some of the peer reviewers have thought, well, maybe this is just uh, physiology, that there wasn't enough of, of a stress. But I'm not sure that I buy that. Uh, so I'm still I thought I think it's that the power of meditation and for a lot of these women being told to do nothing to just relax is, was a novelty. And I think they actually all enjoyed that. I think there was a placebo response to the control as well as to the other, to the exercising and to the um, infrared. Another interesting point has to look at adverse effects. So actually I was pretty surprised. Uh, I'd have to say the infrared sauna was very well tolerated. In fact, there was only one um, potential problem that I'm not convinced was infrared sauna related, but one of the participants developed a migraine headache the evening after she had done the infrared sauna. Um, but once I dived into her data and looked at her heart rate variability data, her heart rate variability data was very different from the other two days she came even before we started the infrared sauna. And she herself said she felt better after the infrared sauna before she ended up going home and then having it. So I'm not sure it was infrared sauna induced. If anything, I think the infrared sauna just helped hold it off a bit. But, um, but that was the only adverse effect reported around the, the infrared sauna. On the other hand, exercise is what caused more of the problems. Like I had one woman develop a vasovagal response. I think she was pushing herself too hard. So she ended up actually having dry heaves, poor thing. And I felt terrible, um, but she, you know, so I wasn't able to collect sweat from her from that. And then another one had bicycle seat issues <laughs> that actually showed up in her urine findings is almost looking like a urinary tract infection. We actually saw in immune cells in her urine from just the irritation from the wrong angle of a, a bicycle seat. So if anything, what that pointed out to me is we, although we like to encourage exercise as a lifestyle activity, I actually think there are risks to exercise that we have to be more aware of and risks of injury and risk of inflammation like this was, was interesting. So again, it just, it reinforces that I think if Fred sauna is a well-tolerated activity overall. Amazing. So I guess if we think about the, the, the heart rate, you know how um, infrared saunas are also called um, an, an um, passive aerobic exercise? Did you look into sort of the calories that we would burn 
or just you know what what does your does your gut tell you about doing the the exercise on the bicycle versus the infrared like if if the pulse was was the heart rate was a little bit high on exercise right yes yes now now you're getting into i liked how you phrase that the gut what does my gut tell me well we're getting into different ways i'm not one of these people that believes uh energy in equals energy out i think there's a lot more going on in our gut microbiome um to affect metabolism than just these the things like exercise and in fact what you find i mean i find working with um my patients all the time is though exercise doesn't always lead to weight loss and so there's much i, I think i have to not comment on that because i i i don't view the infrared sauna as a tool for weight loss i view it as a tool for immune conditioning which I think the immune system is very involved in some of the problems around gaining weight or or losing weight, but I don't think it's that directive relationship. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, that makes sense. And I think um, you know some people would say, look, the, the body actually holds on to to body mass and fat in particular if it means that toxins can be stored in rather than having it floating through the organs, and therefore you know an infrared sauna would detoxify, which reduces the need for storage capacity for toxins. You know, that would be a theory too. Maybe. I mean, what I find why we lose weight uh, acutely when we do a sauna is mostly because of that increased sweating I talked about. So it's water weight. It's, it's not necessarily the muscle mass weight that is reduced when you go into the sauna. And that's how it's used for jockeys, horse jockeys and wrestlers. I mean, to get it into a certain weight category, what you're doing is manipulating your water weight, which acutely changes. So, and it's interesting, I do understand that there is quite a bit of interest around uh, looking at how much energy is burned from that. But I think, yeah, I, from the science point of view, that doesn't make a lot of sense to me. I think there's, I think the microbiome, the gut microbiome, its contents and its modulations to me make a lot more sense to uh, influencing our neurotransmitters and our mitochondrial function much more than just um, thermoregulation. But that's my bias. I mean, that's, that's where I'm coming from, but that's not to say I could be, I, I might be proven wrong on that one though. Science is a funny beast. It never ends actually really, right? You know, you can't have like, you know, you have sort of like a modest uh, certainty that something is like that or, you know, high certainty or very high or virtually, you know, certainty, but there's always something further to look into. And I think, you know, that's just the nature of, of, of science. You know, you will have to follow up with maybe a, a bigger trial group or, you know, more detailed measures, um, measurements in, in certain areas. Yes, and we all have our biases. I don't think people realize that enough, but, you know, scientists are human beings and we all have our, you know, tiny or huge biases that influence our work. And I try to declare my biases all the time, but it's, it's tough. You know, that's the nature of bias is it sneaks in. Yeah. And <clears throat> I think it's okay to acknowledge that science is a tool, but it's not perfect in any means because the models used 
the fu fundamental models to actually come up with with a theory and then try to prove it changes all the time as well. It does, and that's one of my. That's actually one of my interests is that I feel there's a big divide happening between what's researched and the people who care for people, who are health caregivers. I feel there's not enough um, intersection. I feel a lot of research projects, especially around something like sauna bathing, get done in this vacuum laboratory that doesn't think the three steps ahead of how are we going to make this clinically meaningful for people who might be suffering with something or who might want to prevent a certain disorder. Um, because I don't think enough mindset goes in with experience of what's involved in, in, help, in helping someone with their health. Yeah, as, as you were saying, the farmer might, might be a good candidate for the infrared sauna and they should know about that because that will really help them if they handle these substances and the person that works in the forest i don't i don't know a forest worker of some kind who has a lot of mosquito issues therefore uses these substances might be better off actually doing more exercise yes exactly that that that's the we don't know the answers to all those yet horses huh no horses for courses <laughs> Hey, um, I, I totally forgot to talk about one thing that I'm extremely interested in, and that's um, the ethereal stiffness that you were talking about, because um, I think that that leans towards vessel dilation in some some sense, wouldn't it? Well, um, yes and no. So the arterial stiffness I measures I measured was with that laser I had mentioned. You know, so it it basically shined a laser um, from the cuff that went through the large brachial artery, bounced off the aorta and came back. And then the waveform of what came back, that light waveform gets analyzed. And then we came up with two major, two major indices of arterial stiffness. Now, both of them were statistically not changed with any of the interventions in the women. Um, but There have been other studies, and again, there are studies that tend to be set up by exercise physiologists or sports scientists, again, who don't always care for, who, are, who aren't always dealing in disease populations. They're dealing in the opposite. They're dealing in usually athletes. So I didn't, find, I didn't reproduce the findings they have published. And that's, again, that makes me wonder, are we looking at... Are we looking through different prisms at the same thing? I don't know. Or maybe it's just I didn't have enough people. I only did 10. Um, and some of these other studies have included larger. Then there's the other big elephant in the room. A lot of those studies are done on men. And I really do think in terms of thermal regulation, men and women are different beasts. In fact, women, us women, we've got estrogen and progesterone and we cycle when we're premenopausal and All of my women were pre-menopausal, but there's no question of our body temperature is different. Um, it, when we're in the beginning of our cycle, it tends to be a full degree lower. So there I go back to that full degree lever. Whereas when we're menstruating or right about to menstruate, we can be a full degree higher than a baseline set point. So That's another reason I did this in just women is we need more data around women. We can't just keep assuming 
the one size fits all with, with our different physiologies. Um, and I suspect arterial stiffness is one of those things that might be different in women. Uh, and especially premenopausal versus postmenopausal. And that would certainly help to explain the differences you see in postmenopausal women compared to premenopausal women in terms of cardiovascular risks, profiles, and things. But whether, you know, I think it's all related and it's multifactorial. But, um, and arterial stiffness, when you think about it too, is still a fairly difficult beast to capture. I mean, this, this idea of, uh, it's a very unnatural process of shining a laser up someone's artery. And I can see how we've, it still needs to be validated. It's not something we use in clinical medicine yet. We should be, I think, once more studies get done, but you know, I don't routinely tell people what their arterial stiffness measures are. Whether I will be in the next five or 10 years is going to be interesting. Did you say you also measured the circumference of, of the arm? No, no. I used a, an arm cuff. That went, That's what this this whole laser, it's called a Sphygma Core. Was a, it's actually a Sydney-based um, company that produces this arterial stiffness measurement machine. But it's based on a cuff that went around the arm. Oh, I see. I see. That makes sense. Brilliant. Look, um, that is... That's extreme insights, I think, and it's it's really wonderful. And I would love you to just keep researching this to come, you know, to more conclusions. Because I'm sure, not only would you like to go further with what you have already done, but I'm sure you are aware of so many other objectives that you could add to such a stu study to understand more what it, you know, what, what's the optimum way to, I guess, live in a way that's, you know, at the end of the day for you. I know, you know. The well-being of, of, of people, of course, is in the center, center of all what you do. And therefore, it's all about like, what is it actually that we can recommend so that people are healthier, happier, and, you know, and all the rest of it? Yeah, no, exactly. And actually, something you just said made me realize another um, drawback of my study. And it, it's, and it had to do with mon money, basically. But I really think the benefits of sauna come from routine use. And as you can hear, what my study was only looking at acute effects. I really think in the future, what I want to do is focus more on these long-term effects. So really having people do a, looking at that arterial stiffness and heart rate variability changes after they've done three months of regular sauna bathing or three, you know, those would be much better the data around that is going to be much more clinically meaningful than what happens in a single session. It's just the same way that just because you run uh, 10 kilometers doesn't make you a healthier person, you know? So, so same way with, I think, sauna, just getting into the sauna occasionally every now and then isn't going to have the same health benefits as doing it regularly. And I want to add data to that point. Yeah. Fair enough. Yeah. That would be exciting. Yeah. So Well, I'm going to try my best, I hope, <laughs> to, to give you more data next time. Please, yes. Well, you know, I would love to have you back on because I think there's other things that we can still cover. But I'll let you go for today. And um, thank you very, very much for all the insights and all your good work that you've done and, you know, how difficult it must have been during a time when, when you were in lockdown and all the rest of it. But nevertheless, the thesis is there. Well, thanks, Sebastian, for giving me the opportunity to make this, this type of data and these type of findings available to people who it's accessible to already, I think. 
And if that, so that's great. I love it. And hey, since we last talked, I have new websites. And, and by the way, I want to say that our Facebook group uh, around sauna science is still going gung-ho and we keep adding people, five to 10 people every week. So uh, again, if people will look up the Facebook, it's a public group called Sauna Science. There's been some great postings and we try and share a lot of the data that comes out. Uh, that would be one way. And I also have a website now, uh, drjoyhussein.com. That's just D-R-J-O-Y-H-U-S-S-A-I-N.com. Um, that's getting, I'm still working on it. It's still getting built <laughs> properly, but, but it should be available in the next month or so. Exciting. Thank you so much for your time, Joy. Is there something else? Sorry. Pardon? Oh, and then I'm also um, getting together a company called Medisana. And that's where it's, so it's medisana.org. And that's where I'm going to try to develop from the data that's already available, certain infrared sauna and traditional sauna based um, protocols for people to explore if they have a particular type of um, medical condition. That is so good. Please do, because there's a real need for this coming from the medical field. You know, there's a lot of anecdotal knowledge that we have or, you know, experience, you know, shared by our customers. But that's not something we can share easily and just say, like, look, you know, you know, this, this is this is medically, you know, understood. And therefore, this would be a good protocol or something. Of course, it's always, you know, uh, your own risk of doing these protocols. But it's it's so needed to come from a so, someone who really understands this topic. Well, I definitely want to, because that's how I fell into sauna bathing. I mean, I have peripheral arterial issues. And that's how I discovered sauna be better. And that's actually what started my whole research is do other people that have what I have called Raynaud's uh, phenomenon, can they benefit from this too as well? So, yes, yeah, so that's a work in progress, but I'm, I'm really, that's one of my passion projects right now. Brilliant. Love it. All right. Well, thanks for having me on, Sebastian. Thank you so much, Joy. Guys, thank you so much for listening to The Sauna Show. My name is Sebastian Mirau, and this episode was sponsored by Clearlight Jacuzzi Saunas, the world's leading provider of superior quality, full-spectrum infrared saunas. You can find more information and resources for this podcast at thesaunashow.com, all one word, or on Instagram at thesaunashow. Please don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and share this episode with friends. Until next time, have the best day ever.